0: The word of God relies heavily on metaphors. It's used to illustrate God's truth and biblical principles with examples. Frequently, one of the most common metaphors is that of running a race. The Christian life is often depicted as an athlete who prepares and partakes in the running of that race. This morning, as we continue to advanced through our closure of the book of Colossians. Our text just does just that. It once again illustrates something as a race, but this time it's prayer. The one who runs the race exemplifies the one who prays. Prayer is an endeavor that requires discipline and diligence, devotion and dedication, Prayer is a discipline that requires active participation, not apathetic passiveness. That is what we see this morning. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4. And if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it is on page 926. And I want to bring to you a message that I've titled Precepts for Christian Relationships, as we've been going through. But today we look at that third precept, And that third precept is that Christians are connected in Christ through prayer. So please stand for the reading of God's word. (coughs) Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, he greets you, always struggling on your behalf in the prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers in Laodicea, <coughs> excuse me, and to Nympha and to the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it read also to the church of the Laodiceans, and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains grace be with you you may be seated Sometimes the most powerful position is not the perch of a podium but the posture of prayer The discipline of prayer is more than a duty from God The discipline of prayer is more than obedience to God The discipline of prayer is an offering of the Lord. It is the Lord offering himself to his people by being willing to make himself available to those who would trust in him. It's an offering of the Lord to develop a relationship with his people. And so prayer is the Lord's gift of himself. Therefore, I would say a person's commitment to pray is indicative of a person's commitment to God. A thorough prayer indicates a thorough trust of God. A willingness to pray indicates a willingness to walk in the Lord's will. On the other side of that, a casual prayer expresses a casual relationship with God. A lack of prayer suggests a lack of trust in God. Prayer suggests sufficiency. In God, while a lack of prayer suggests confidence in man's sufficiency. An interesting aspect of prayer, though, is that there are two sides of prayer. It's not just a means to submit to God, but it's a means to serve others. While prayer causes us to call upon the Lord, it's not used exclusively for us to call upon the Lord for our own selves. Sometimes we use the gift of prayer to call upon the Lord on behalf of others. Our most meaningful prayers are oftentimes those when we seek to labor on behalf of those in our lives. When we seek to find the Lord's wisdom and the Lord's will and the Lord's work in the life of someone else. In this way then, prayer really is fairly extraordinary because what it does is it binds two people together but it binds them together by connecting them to God and that tells us something about Christian relationships as we've looked at these final verses we learn of these precepts for Christian relationships the first precept we learned based on verses 7 through 9 was that Christians are connected in Christ and then last week, looking at verses 10 through 11, we saw that because Christians are connected in Christ, their relationships then reflect the character of Christ. And now we learned something else. Because believers are connected in Christ, they not only serve with one another, but they serve for one another through prayer. Epaphras offers his own testimony of this truth. Paul writes of it in verses 12 and 13 of our text. That's not the first mention of Epaphras, though, in the book of Colossians. All the way back in chapter 1, Paul includes him in his introduction. And there we learn that Epaphras is the one who has imparted the truth of the Lord to the churches in that region. These churches, which are also listed here of Colossae and Laodicea and Hierapolis, they all owe their beginning to Epaphras, because it was the Lord's work through Epaphras that these churches were first founded. And now what we see is that it is through the Lord's work through Epaphras that these churches are sustained. They're sustained through his labors for the Lord as their shepherd or as their pastor. And now what we learn from our text in Colossians 4 is that Epaphras finds himself in Rome, with Paul, and he's, he's giving a report on all these churches, letting Paul know what's going on. And so what happens is Epaphras is with Paul reporting to him about the churches. Paul reports on Epaphras to the churches through this letter. And what we see is one man's submission to the work of the Lord through his submission to Prayer. Like the others that precede him, beginning in verse 7, Epaphras sends his greetings to the church in Colossae. But Paul describes Epaphras different than he describes any of the others on this list. Look at verse 12. It begins, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Epaphras is noted to be a servant of Christ Jesus, or more appropriately, He is a slave to Christ Jesus. Paul has written at least 13 letters of the New Testament. He's covered more ground than any other New Testament author. But in all those words, only three people does Paul refer to a slave as a slave of Christ. Himself, Timothy, and Epaphras. This is a term that is reserved for the most committed of followers, describing one who is deeply devoted and fully faithful to Christ. This is a person who is willing to renounce anything earthly in order to receive anything heavenly. This is who Epaphras was. And from this commitment to the Lord, we see his commitment to the people of the Lord. It tells us something then that's very important about prayer. It is because he so desires the Lord that Epaphras so dedicates himself to prayer to the Lord. This example points to the principal prerequisite of prayer. The principal prerequisite of prayer. To be willing to pray to God, one must first be willing to trust God. God. Prayer would have no purpose if there was no one to direct our prayers to. That's the principal prerequisite, a requirement of prayer, that we have a belief or a trust in the Lord. Further on in the text, we'll see that Epaphras' prayer was both very intentional and very intense. It shows readers that Epaphras' devotion to prayer ultimately was a result of his devotion to God that he prays because he was a slave of God. That also teaches us something about prayer, that he was a slave. Prayer is not only affected by a person's belief in God, but it is also affected by what a person believes about God. And so I would say that the principal prerequisite to prayer is both belief in God and a right belief in God. You can tell a lot about a person's belief in the Lord based on how they pray to the Lord. The person who believes that God is all authoritative and all powerful will respond to any circumstances first in prayer. The one who is merely convinced that God simply exists is first going to respond to any life situations by seeing what he or she can do to correct that situation. But the one who is trusting the Lord will hit the ground with his knees in prayer before he hits the ground with his feet to run. As an example, if I truly believe that God is all-knowing, having more wisdom than I, then my response will be not to trust in my own understanding. My response to any circumstance would be to submit to the Lord in prayer and seek his understanding. And if I'm not willing to do that, then I'm probably not trusting the Lord's understanding. Prayer to God reflects what we believe about God. Towering thoughts of God lead to towering prayers to God. That's what we see with Epaphras here. His prayer to God is a reflection of his belief in God. But notice that his service and supplication are not just an expression of his relationship to God, but they're an expression of his relationship with fellow believers. Epaphras doesn't labor in prayer just for himself and for his own endeavors. They're directed towards God on behalf of those he loves in Christ. That's a major aspect of believers' relationships with one another compared to relationships in the world. The relationship between believers always involves a third person, it always involves God. After all, the Lord is omnipresent, meaning He is present everywhere, so that wherever we are, He is. This is then expressed fully through prayer. And we're not praying to one another, we're praying to God for one another. The video I just showed you is from the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. And I did so not just to illustrate the points of a grueling race. Did you notice what they did at the very end? Upon winning that gold medal, those four women, led by Alice and Felix, immediately gathered into a group for prayer. That was their first reaction to such a great triumph. And it tells you something about what they believed about God. As their leader, Alice and Felix directed them publicly to prayer, and I can tell you privately, her and her family would do the exact same thing. That they maintain a, both a public and a private testimony for the Lord, committed to Him, they're committed to pray for, pray to Him. This is a principal prerequisite of prayer: to believe in the Lord and to be a slave in Christ Jesus. Not only is our relationship with Christ a prerequisite for prayer, but it also defines the priority of prayer. Prayer becomes the first activity in a relationship with God and with others, for that matter. It also becomes the most strenuous. Because believers are connected in Christ, they serve fellow believers by interceding on their behalf. Epaphras exemplifies this posture of prayer. According to Paul's description of him in our text, it says, Epaphras, who is always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. From this, I want you to note, second, the sufficient service of prayer. There are times when believers are separated by such vast distances, just as Epaphras was separated from his church in Colossae, that it renders it impossible to physically serve one another. And so when there is nothing to do, prayer is still a means to serve. Other times, believers are simply uncertain what to do. The situation is is so much that we're not really sure how to respond. Prayer is still sufficient. When we can't respond, when we don't know how to respond, prayer is always sufficient. Sometimes the most loving act of service is and the most strenuous for that matter, is to pray on one another's behalf. In fact, I would say that because prayer is strenuous, it is sufficient. Prayer is not a passive discipline that one can simply engage in while they're multitasking, although sometimes maybe we do. That's not the example we see here. The picture of prayer displayed in the text, it's one of an active endeavor in which the one praying expels their full energy, full focus, and full exertion in a labor to plead with the Lord on behalf of somebody else. Our common posture of prayer is one of being very casual, a casual conversation perhaps. But the text indicates that Epaphras' posture of prayer is one of passionate pleading. That's captured by the word struggling in our text. It says Epaphras struggles in prayer. That word struggle is a Greek word in which it pictures athletics, much like we see in 1 Corinthians 9:24 through 25. It says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives a prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They, they, do, it to, they do it to receive a perishable wreath but we, an imperishable. That picture is the picture that we see in our text about Epaphras. That his prayer is one of running a race, like we just saw. The idea is that he is one who's running a race, and he puts forth all that he has in order to press forward in prayer. (coughs) The one who prays is like an athlete who will use every ounce of energy in order to plead or intercede, again, on behalf of others. We think of prayer as requiring very minimal effort, but the example set before us equates the energy of prayer with the energy of what we just saw in that women's relay team. Again, they utilized every bit of energy that they had, pulling forth all their weight and all their strength in order to run that race. Did you notice, or what you should have noticed, is, is how those final 100 meters came off? I actually heard people commenting on it. At that last handoff, the United States team was actually in second place, and there was quite a large gap between first and second. And then at 200 meters to go, Sonia Richards starts to close that gap. And then, what did you see in the last 100 meters? Somehow she summoned up even more energy and she increased her speed and not only did that gap close, she overcame it and eventually passed, winning ahead of the Russian team who was later disqualified, by the way. It's an effort that brings the entire team across the finish line to the point that they won that gold medal that year. And then afterwards you can see that physically they're exhausted. They've given themselves until there's nothing left to give. That's the race that we have pictured before us with Epaphras' prayer. With that one word struggling, he prays until he has nothing left to give Utterly exhausted, like an athlete, he has nothing left to give and and essentially collapses. When was the last time I prayed like that? Notice, though, there's an adjective there. There's, There's a description given to prayer and given to that prayer struggle. The verse says, always struggling in prayer. This was not a one time event. He's always struggling in prayer, is what Paul says. That would make sense because the expectation on believers, written elsewhere in 1 Thessalonians, is that we pray continuously. So if prayer is a struggle and prayer is continuous, then it should always be a continuous struggle. That tells us something about prayer, then it's sufficient. If prayer was not helpful and prayer was not effective, there would be no need to pray. But according to James, prayer accomplishes much. And so it becomes the constant position of the believer. When life circumstances overwhelm a fellow believer, and there's so much to do that you don't know where to begin, we begin with prayer. And when life circumstances are so difficult... And nobody knows what to do. We still begin with prayer. Prayer is a sufficient way for believers to serve one another. When there's too much to do and when there's nothing to do or you don't know what else to do, prayer is what we do. Oh, we were on vacation two weeks ago. Turkey experienced their massive earthquake. Truthfully, I didn't pay a lot of attention to the news But we were in line at a coffee shop and the news came on. It was even in English. And I saw what was taking place. Realizing how bad it was at that moment, I pulled out my phone and texted a friend. Just simply asking, are you and your wife safe? He responded back and said, actually, they'd flown out the night before. They'd just missed it. And so I said quite truthfully to him, from a distance, I have no idea what I can do for you. What do you need? What came back was a picture. It was a picture of his pastor and the pastor's wife. And he said simply, they both perished. But in that picture was also their son, who looked to be about 10 or 11 years old, who survived. And so his response was, just pray. Prayer is sufficient. Thomas Brooks writes, communion with God makes bitter things sweet and massive things light. Prayer is always a sufficient service that every believer can engage in for one another. I want you to note third, the magnificent motivation of prayer. The magnificent motivation or magnificent motive of prayer the content of our prayer is limitless. It lacks no restrictions. When the Lord instructs his people to pray continuously, including the Colossians, including you and I, when he says pray without ceasing, that means he's opened himself up to hear us without ceasing. Whatever that may be, whatever we share, he's willing to hear our pleas and petitions, not that he doesn't already know them. But look at the content of a Epaphras' prayer here. The text reads, he's always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. This is not a superficial prayer. This is a sanctifying prayer. It's a prayer not calling upon the Lord to do a Epaphras' will, but a calling upon the Lord to do his will. Look at those words again. That you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Where have you heard those words before? Two years ago, I shared them with you when I was candidating. But they come from Colossians 128. In his introduction, Paul, he outlines his goals for ministry and he says, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. They have the same goal then, Epaphras and Paul. One commentator notes that what Epaphras is seeking to do in his praying for the Colossians, Paul is seeking to do in his writing to the Colossians. So they have the same goals for ministry, but their focus and their gifting is different. It's not a surprise because the Lord sets the same goals for everyone. He sets the same ministry agenda. Both Paul and Epaphras desire to see people be made mature. That's the Great Commission. This is discipleship, to make disciples. One's just doing it through teaching and the other's doing it through praying. Epaphras' prayer is a magnificent expression of his love for the Colossian people because he prays, again, not for his own will to be done for them. He doesn't even pray for the Colossians' will to be done. He prays that God would fulfill what he desires in the Colossians. Epaphras is praying for something far greater, that God accomplish his will. The greatest thing that we can desire for fellow believers is not that people get what they want and not that people get what we want them to get, but that they get what God wants them to get. In our sinful state, sin impacts everything, and that includes our own will. Our own wills are tainted by sin. But God's will, according to Romans twelve two, is good and acceptable and perfect. Of God's will, of this text, Martin Luther says, But the will of God is good, because out of evil it brings good. It's acceptable because it causes us to love that good with great joy and to be well and rightly pleased with it, and even with the evil which, from which it may have come at times. And it is perfect because it brings those to rejoice in it, to completion in eternity, and thus perfects what it had begun. The greatest expression of love for our fellow believers is a desire that God's will be expressed in their lives. Notice that his prayer is more specific, not just asking that the Lord's will be done, but that they would be mature and fully assured of his will. Epaphras is praying that they would be fully satisfied in the will of God and assured of what it is. There's really a reciprocal relationship here between being mature and being assured in the will of God. The more biblically mature somebody comes, the more assured they are in the will of God. And the more assured they are in the will of God, the more likely they are to become biblically mature. There is a reality in the content of this prayer, then. It's a prayer for contentment. And contentment really only comes from being satisfied by God and by His will. We see that in Ephesians chapter 4. By our human (coughs) wills, we will never be fully satisfied. There is always more to want. And I, I don't mean just want more material things. Sometimes we want more appreciation from people, sometimes we want more obedience from our children, other times we just want more pleasure from life. There's an endless list of wants. But whatever the case may be, our human wills will never be fully satisfied until they're fully satisfied in the will of God. True, contentment comes only from being fully satisfied in him. Because whatever the circumstances are, or are not, whatever we have or, or don't have, we're content with the Lord's will, knowing that at that moment, his will is good, his will is acceptable, acceptable. And his will is perfect. Contentment, then, is an expression of trust. It says, I am content here, wherever I'm at, because it is his will. And I trust that his will is good, acceptable, and perfect, because I trust that he is good, acceptable, and perfect. You start to see how this transforms prayer. The Lord's going to accomplish his will regardless of people, And so in our text, Epaphras isn't praying for God to change his purpose. He's praying for people to change their purpose and for God to just fulfill his will. Why pray then? If the Lord is going to do as he pleases, why pray? Because sometimes prayer isn't about us convincing God to do what we want. Prayer is about convincing us to do what God wants. A model of prayer given by christ in matthew chapter 7 is thy will be done your will father god be done i think steve sport says it well when he says for us as sinful men and women prayer is not designed to align god with our will but to align our will with god prayer is not to make god more like us but to make us more like god it should firm up the muscles of our faith That's what we saw in our scripture reading this morning in Genesis chapter 18. We have this conversation between God and Abraham, a model of prayer in one sense, and God's talking about his impending destruction on Sodom, and Abraham pleads with him. But Lord, what if there are righteous people there? It's almost like a negotiation, it seems, a bargain. And eventually, what does the Lord say? No, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Then what happens? We didn't read it, but Genesis 19, 24 and 25. Eventually, it says, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. God still continues to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Did his plan change? No. Did God not know that there were no righteous people there? Of course not. It's not like he needed Abraham to go search and see if there were any righteous people in any of these cities. So God didn't change his will for Abraham. So what happened? What we see a little later on is it caused Abraham to be comfortable with the Lord's plan, essentially confirming the Lord already knew what was going on. His plan was already perfect because he had complete knowledge. So Abraham changed his will and his willingness to accept what the God had planned, confirming what we should know anyway, that the Lord knows what He's doing. So Abraham changed his will. And he accepted the Lord's will, which was, again, good, acceptable, perfect. The greatest thing we can pray for one another is not that our will be done, but that we would be content and satisfied when God's will is done. That's how we pray for one another. That's the magnificent motive of prayer. I want you to note, finally, The depleting disposition of prayer. The depleting disposition of prayer. D.A. Carson reminds us, we don't drift into spiritual life. We do not drift into disciplined prayer. We do not grow in prayer unless we plan to pray. That means we must set aside time to do nothing but pray. What we actually do reflects our highest priorities. He's not wrong there. That means that we can proclaim our commitment to prayer until the cows come home, but unless we actually pray, our actions disown our words. Genuine prayer is both intentional and intense. Sometimes when I finish praying, you can hardly tell that I prayed at all. There's no noticeable difference, and it doesn't look like I expelled any energy. But that's, again, not the model of prayer that we see here in our text It does not just happen as routine for most of us, but it comes from a discipline that causes us to develop prayer as a habit, making it a routine part of our lives. But again, it's not even a casual discipline. It requires us to invest our entire being into it to the point of depleting our energy and any believer of all their stamina and all their strength. We saw this earlier already with the word struggle in verse 12. Paul could have simply said, Epaphras is praying for you. But that's not what he says. He says he struggles in prayer. The word struggle comes from the same root word for our word agonize. As in Epaphras' prayer is so weighty that he is in agony through prayer. John describes Jesus' prayer in the garden of Gethsemane, in the same way that he agonized in prayer. One person notes it's not a momentary spasm of anguish, but instead is an overwhelming worry and distress for someone else. Now that point is reinforced by verse 13. Verse 13 reads, "For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis." probably worked hard in a number of ways but the context shows that this is prayer our English translations do little to capture the significance of this text but that phrase he has worked very hard for you that really minimizes what Paul actually wrote the word is polis meaning pain in other words Epaphras toiled so heavily in prayer on their behalf that it caused him pain I think this burden of prayer is reflected in his burden for people. The Lord used Epaphras to establish the churches in this region. It was Epaphras who God used to bring them the truth of God. And it was Epaphras who God used to make disciples and establish these churches. And now Epaphras carries that responsibility of shepherding these people to the point that he wants to see them mature in Christ. Ultimately, every person is responsible to God for his or her own life decisions. I get that. But Epaphras is their shepherd. And as their shepherd, he will stand before God. Like any pastor or any elder of any church today, he will stand before God and he will give an account for how well he stewarded these people on behalf of the Lord and for the Lord's glory. There are really two reasons why somebody would put themselves in that position. It's either out of pride to seek their own motives, or it's out of genuine love to seek the Lord's motives. By his willingness to expend himself in prayer to the point of self-sacrifice, it's clear that Epaphras' motive is love. And now that love comes at a cost. Because what's happening in the church of Colossae at this time? Why was this letter to the Colossians written? If you remember, it's because false teaching is invading the church. It has come into the church and some are being misled and now they're abandoning their faith, the faith that they once knew. Many of us have either struggled ourselves or have walked alongside people who have struggled when they've watch someone close to them abandon their faith in Christ. And it's devastating. That's where Epaphras is at. He's burdened by watching his own spiritual children turn to this false teaching, and yet loving them so much, and he's so burdened by him that he begins to pray, and pray intensely, to the point that he gives all that he can give, to the point it causes him pain, whether emotional or physical. I appreciated Everett Harrison's thoughts on this verse, saying souls are precious in the sight of the pleader, when for for their sake he counts not the pain of such intercession too great a price to pay for their perfecting. Earlier I shared with you one of the texts I got on vacation. Within a few minutes of that text started another one, another conversation with somebody else. This conversation was with a fellow pastor and a dear friend of ours. And about three months ago, they had texted our family requesting prayer because they'd been in Canada visiting her parents when his wife fell very ill. And so they went to the hospital, and what they found was a mass there. Basically, the doctor said, we don't know what's going on, but we think you need to get back to the States as soon as possible. After some quick studies, it was revealed there was a mass on her kidney, And so right before Christmas, she had surgery and removed the mass, removed a kidney. And she's been recovering very slowly. But the text that he sent while we were on vacation basically said, well, where they removed that mass right before Christmas, there's already another one in its place and even larger. At this point, there's nothing we can do. So the doctor told them to expect the worst and hope for the best. But his prayer request was this. Pray for the best and hope for eternity. It was a devastating text to read. It was helpless because there's also nothing I can do. Not just from distance, but there there's nothing I can do to change that situation. And yet rarely have I prayed so much or with so much energy than I did for that circumstance. See, but that's what loving other believers will do. It causes you to carry their burdens in prayer. When there's so much to do, you don't know what to do. You start with prayer. And when there's nothing you can do, you start with prayer. Genuine prayer is hard work. It will deplete you of all your energy, all your strength, and all your emotion. And that's the depleting disposition of prayer. I know I have a lot of quotes this morning, but it was Kai King who so passionately asserts, Oh, to be thus prayer warriors, battling for souls with what is, in his Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan calls, the weapon of prayer. Such supplication overleaps all distances, all barriers. The friend in China can be reached via the throne. The unfriendly neighbor can be reached via the throne. The believers in Colossae can be reached by Epaphras in distant Rome via the throne. And so simply by highlighting Epaphras as one of his co-workers, a fellow slave in the Lord, Paul points specifically to Epaphras' posture of prayer. And what he does is he points to this principal prerequisite, that. Prayer is a discipline only for believers, those who are slaves of Christ. Second, he notes the sufficient service of prayer. Christians may serve in a variety of ways, and they may serve one another in a variety of ways, and at different times. But prayer is a very practical means. In all places, in all circumstances, at all times, prayer is always sufficient. Notice also that Paul points to the magnificent motive. There are valid reasons to pray, beginning with exalting God. But the example here is praying for contentment and satisfaction in God's will. And finally, we see Paul note the depleting disposition of prayer. It's a labor-intense discipline requiring a person to give of their full being. The Christian life is not hard. It's impossible. There's only one person, one man, who has ever been able to live the perfect Christian life. That was Jesus Christ. And so in the Lord's construction of the Christian life, he has made the Christian life possible, first, by the gift of his son, by his son's work, by Jesus Christ, that he could accomplish something we couldn't accomplish ourselves, which was that payment for sin accomplished through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. Second, the Lord made it possible, or at least bearable by the gift of prayer, so that Christians do not need to navigate their life alone. He first gives prayer as a means for people to call upon him and to rely upon him. we also see here that he, he gives it as a way to support one another. Prayer becomes a gift from the Lord, so that we can serve one another. Sometimes the most sacrificial act of love for others is to sacrifice ourselves in prayer for others. Let's pray. Our Father God, you have gifted us in so many ways, Lord. Bestowing on us your very own presence, Lord, first through your Son, and then through your spirit. And by those gifts, Lord, we can call upon you and we can have a relationship with you. We can converse with you through prayer, Lord. Father, I pray that we would give you great praise for that gift, that we would not take it for granted and not take it for advantage, but but rather, Lord, we would see it as our means to grow closer to you, Lord. And in that way, help us to cultivate the discipline of prayer, both in our own lives, but also on behalf of those that are in our lives, Lord. May prayer be a way in which we can shoulder the burdens of this sinful world with one another, Lord. And ultimately, may that prayer fixate our gaze upon you at all times, in all circumstances, with all people. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.